Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 73. Not John, you say. I know, we finished it last week. Psalm 73. Some of you have been asking what we're going to do next. We're going to do some selected passages between now and through the end of the year. Maybe one or two topical messages on the church at the beginning of the year. And then, Lord willing, we're going to dive our way into, I believe, Hebrews. And we're going to creatively entitle that sermon series, Hebrews. As you're finding Psalm 73, you might ask, what about Psalm 73? What about the Psalms in general? If you've been around Crosspoint for any length of time, you know that we love truth. We love doctrine. We love weighty, good doctrine that stabilizes our hearts and puts our feet on the ground and that, that helps us make sense of the world. And doctrine, as glorious as it is and as important as it is, was never meant to be an end unto itself. Good theology is meant to push the people of God into good doxology, which means that the study of God should cause us to worship God. And why are the Psalms in the Bible? Why are 150 chapters basically the Hebrew song book? Why is it there for us? It's for us primarily to make sense of life when doctrine, truth, seems confusing. In fact, some of the psalms, many of the psalms, are songs of lament. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible in the Old Testament called Lamentations. And so what do you do when you have good doctrine, when you know who Christ is, you know what the Trinity is, you know what salvation is, you know who you are in light of God, but when life gets confusing, how do you make sense of that? Have the people of God ever experienced things like you are experiencing? And the answer to that with a hearty yes and amen is found in the Psalms, and in particular in Psalm 73. So here's our plan today. I think this psalm breaks down in two parts. I think the first 16 verses, which I'm going to read, are about perspective lost. And then verses 17 through 28 are about perspective found. So that's our outline today, perspective lost and perspective found. This is a song, a psalm written by a man named Asaph. He wrote about 10, 11, 12 psalms of the 150. He was a well-known song leader in Israel in the Old Testament. Listen to these words now from Asaph in Psalm 73. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 16. Don't let a long reading of the Scripture cause your mind to wander. Ask God to help you think about and listen to the Word of God. These first 16 verses give us a perspective of perspective lost. This is what the psalmist says. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff 
and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Let's stop there and think about perspective lost by Asaph here. He starts off with a a confession. It's almost as if Asaph, he knows what he's going to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He knows that it's going to be jarring as the people of God sing this song. And so it's almost as if before he gets into the muck and the mire of his heart pouring out in his perspective lost, he wants to just remind himself and everybody else that sings this song with him and reads it thousands of years later that really, no, no, he, he knows who God is. So he starts with this confession Just in case you're about to doubt me because of what we're about to read, he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's almost like Asaph, to comfort our hearts, is giving us the end of the story. He's giving his conclusion for us at the beginning of the psalm. And then he transitions into verse 2 and he says, listen to this, but as for me, look, it's good, Israel, Listen, listen to his perspective. Listen to the loss of perspective. Look, everybody else. Everybody else knows that God is good. But as for me, verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. It's almost as if Asaph is creating a special category for himself. And this is what happens when we lose perspective. We start to think that our situation is unique, that we are one of, uh, we're, we're separated from everybody else. We are alone in this, and we can say, yes, God may be good to Israel. He may be good to the people of God. He's blessing my brothers and sisters, but no, me, me, I'm out on an island here. God's good to them, but it's just not working out to me. Notice Asaph's perspective slipping. Here's the question, though. What is happening in Asaph's life? that he would say all of these things that he says in the first 16 verses? Well, the answer to that question is we don't know. He doesn't tell us. Was it a relationship that had gone bad? Was it some sickness? Was it a child that was straying? Was it friends that betrayed him? Was it enemies that were persecuting him? Was it a sin that started in him that is now causing him to view the world in this way? Was it a combination of all of these things? We don't know. And friends, I think that, inti- that ambiguity is intended by God so that we don't write ourselves out of the story because we don't say, aha, As- Asaph had this situation. It's not what I'm facing, so it doesn't apply to me. Me. The Bible intends ambiguity when it speaks of the trials and sufferings of God's people so that it has a broad application. That's why we don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh is when he speaks of it in 2 Corinthians 12. We don't know. So much ink has been spilled. I mean, people have written books 
over what is exactly Paul's thorn in his flesh when we could have saved all of that ink and just said, we don't know and we aren't supposed to know. So that it would apply to all of God's people. Don't write yourself out of Psalm 73. It applies to all of us at various times in our life. In verse 3, he says, he confesses, I was envious of the arrogant. Notice these next three words, when I saw, when I saw with my eyes, I laid my physical eyes upon what I perceived to be the prosperity of the wicked. And friends, here we'll read and we'll see this later. We understand that in this moment, as he is recounting what he's feeling and his perspective is lost, he's admitting that what he sees only with his eyes, on the outside, he sees everybody around him, these prosperity, the, 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 wick, the prosperity of the wicked, and he is concluding that God is not involved, and the things that God has told him in his word about how he will bring justice just aren't necessarily true in this situation. And Asaph's conclusion is, is that God just really isn't interested, therefore he's not involved in my life. And for instance, I want you to notice this. Asaph here, when he uses these words, when I saw, he's just kind of admitting. He's just admitting his limited perspective, and he is assuming his omniscience. He is, he's, he's admitting, when I saw it, when I saw the physical, when I saw the temporary, when I saw the circumstances, I'm just going to assume that I know everything that's going on in that situation, and I'm going to assume that that person's pro prospering when I have no idea what's really going on in their life. Friends, this is a sign of maturity in the Christian, and this is a really hard thing to get a hold of in the moment, but I think we need, and we'll see that Asaph does this, we need to learn to doubt our assumed omniscience. And what I mean by that is that we, in moments of trial, when we're losing our perspective, we almost subconsciously assume that we know everything that's going on. And isn't that just kind of the height of pride? We doubt God's omniscience, and we attribute to ourselves total omniscience. When I saw, I know, look, I know what's going on. This is what's happening. The wicked are prospering. His description continues, verse 4, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Don't be tripped up by the word fat. You might think, well, that's not a good thing. Well, in Hebrew poetry and language, it means healthy, it means abundance, it means that they're prospering. They're not in trouble as others are. Again, he doesn't really know what's going on. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They can do whatever they want is what he's saying. Their eyes swell out through fatness, or again, abundance. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Just notice the distortion in Asaph's perception of reality. He has lost perspective. He's confessing it. His eyes are lying to him. This is what Spurgeon says of this psalm and Asaph's perspective. He said his eye was fixed too much on one thing. He saw their present and he forgot their future. He saw their outward display and overlooked their soul's discomfort. And don't we do that? We assume that the person who seems to be getting along much better than us or the situation that seems to be going well or we deem from our situation that we are in some sort of the, the, the thumb of God is on us, we just, we just miscalculate reality. 
And that's where Asaph is. And then verse 10, he says, Therefore his people, now think about this verse, Therefore his people, I think he's referring to the people of God, turn back to them and find no fault in them. So Asaph is so down, he is so discouraged, that he is concluding that because of the prosperity of the world around him and the wicked, the people that hate God, that the faithful people of God are being dragged down by them. They are drinking the water of the world around them. They are buying the junk. They are drinking the polluted waters of the world. And God's people even are turning back to them. He's complaining about the state of the church in a sense. He's saying Israel is being duped by these people. The culture around us is influencing people. Even his people and God's people are following along with the wicked and they are finding no fault in the wicked. In fact, it seems, according to Asaph's perspective, that the righteous are taking the wicked side against God and finding no fault in the wicked. Asaph's in a bad place. And friends, we see, we, see, we see, to some degree, examples of that even today with the confusion of our culture that once, because of the fear of man that seems to grip so many people's heart that even people that would profess to be Christians and maybe even part of, at least hopefully, faithful churches like this would buy into the polluted waters of our culture on things like human sexuality or just even what it means to be a man or a woman. Friends, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And I want to say this to, I, I think sometimes we mistakenly think that young people are particularly vulnerable to this because you guys are in educational situations oftentimes in the public sphere where you are being just pummeled, you're just being barraged with this worldly ideology and confusion. But I think it's all of us. We all, to some degree, are tempted to drink from these broken cisterns where what has historically been true, not just amongst the church, but just amongst people of rational thought, whether they're believers or not, in just what it means to be a man or a woman. Now, within the span of the last few years, our culture has so somehow duped people that now... To even just say what for centuries and millennium people have believed, even unbelievers have believed that, that there is a one man and one woman, that these are the only two possible genders by creation, just by obvious physical observation of human anatomy. Now, if you believe that somehow, you are an enemy of what is good. And friends, we, we are... We are seeing in warp speed lived out before us just the absolute confusion. And I don't say that, friends. I'm always, I'm always, I always want to sort of give a caveat because when, when we need to say those things in, in the church, not avoid those topics, but I also don't want it to be a kind of like, yeah, Brad's getting them now. That's right. Those people out there, they're so bad. And there's a way of recognizing the brokenness of the world that actually lets you just sort of focus on the brokenness of the world and not focus on the brokenness inside. And so we need to do both. And I think here we see Asaph, and we'll see him turn 
turn the sights on his own heart. But here we see Asaph saying, man, the, the, the situation is so messed up that it seems like even God's people are confused and taking the world's side. And we see that to some degree in our day. And then in verse 11, he says, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Friends, this is the anthem of our culture. Notice the pride, the exaltation of man by the dethroning of God. The world said, says God doesn't know, and yet we can know. Now we've taken authority from God, from the heavenly seat of authority, and we've removed that authority in our own broken minds to ourselves, where now we can say whatever we want, and now the anthem of our culture is, your truth is your truth. And Asaph here is recognizing this, and he sees it in the world around him. And he says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So even though to some degree Asaph is true, he's right. He's lost his perspective. And he says, well, they're just getting away with what they're doing. This isn't so much a problem of evil. It's really that the problem for Asaph is justice. Will, will justice be served? And then in verses 13 and following, he says, all in vain. Now he even looks at his own life and he's starting to sort of self-pity himself. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. So now he's sort of training. He's training the sights on himself and he's really kind of getting, he's, 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 he's drowning in self-pity. And he says, you know what? My righteousness hasn't been worth it. God hasn't come through. Things aren't working out like I thought they would be. And now what I have put my hands to isn't worth it. So it's really not so much justice that he's concerned with. It's really his own vindication. And basically in verses 13 and 14, he's saying, woe is me. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And then in verse 15, this is verse 15 is, a, is something else. Verse 15 is like a little glimmer. It's, just a, it's, a, it's a seed of faith that still exists in Asaph, even in this valley that he's in. Listen to verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So what, is, what does that mean in sort of modern day? It's basically, I think Asaph is saying, you know, this is what I perceive the world to be like. The wicked are prospering. Everything is going to hell in a handbasket. God just doesn't seem to be concerned about justice. My life hasn't been worth it. I've tried hard. Nothing seems to be working out. I've kept myself pure, and it's all been for naught. And then in verse 15, he says this. He says, and you know what? If I had spoken like this to God's people, if I had uttered, if I had went public with how I was feeling in the moment, what would have happened is I would have betrayed or I would have led I would have led astray the children of the people of God. So you know what Asaph concludes? Here's like this one little glimmer of maturity. Even though he's completely lost perspective, he says, if I would have posted on Facebook my gripe, I realized that it could have done somebody poor. It could have been bad for somebody reading it. So I kept my mouth shut. Huh. Huh. You know what, if I would have went public with what I was thinking, if I would have got in my feels and had to express myself, then it might have done somebody harm, and so I decided 
to zip it. Huh. That's foreign to our current cultural moment, isn't it? I'm convicted by that. Verse 16. This is how the portion of perspective loss concludes. And this is how life can get us at times. When I thought how to understand this, when I wanted to piece all this together. I mean, come on, I got, I got John Piper books on my shelf. I got Calvin's Institutes. I got, I got, I got volumes of Spurgeon sermons. I've got this. I've got, I've got an ESV study Bible. I've got everything. But when I thought how to piece together this reality right now, it seemed to me, it seemed to me, a wearisome task. It was overwhelming. I couldn't piece it together. That's where Asaph is. The song leader of Israel. It's too much. I couldn't make sense of it. Friends, before we move on to his perspective found, let's not, let's not rush past this moment. Don't let it float in the air. Asaph has lost perspective. We don't know why. It's quite ambiguous. There's not, a whole lot of, there's not a whole lot of specificity, but we know that he's lost his right understanding of the world around him. And let's just admit this. So do we. Friends, this psalm is written for a reason. It's written for people like us who get to places in life Life when we it sneaks up on us, we don't understand where it came from. Maybe it came from the inside. Maybe it came from the outside. Maybe it's a mysterious, providential combination of a whole bunch of things that we do not understand. But all of a sudden, we find ourselves in the darkness. And we can't see our hand before our face, spiritually speaking. And that is where Asaph is. And it's written with that ambiguity so that it speaks to the people of God right now, today, friends. This psalm was written for a reason for you, for us who are in darkness. And we can't see straight. And we're about to give up. But it goes on. Verse 17. Until, <laughs> that's a good word. Uh, this was too much for me, verse 17. Here it is, perspective found. I'm going to read verses 17 through 28 all together. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell, that I may tell of all your works. So in verse 17, 
Asaph finds his perspective, which he has lost. But how? Look at verse 17 again. Notice how Asaph finds where he finds his perspective. Verse 17, until, until I went off into the desert by myself for a long time, got away from all those people at church that drove me crazy, and I got alone and I had quiet time with God, and then I understood everything. No, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Friends, don't miss what's embedded in Asaph's rediscovery of his perspective. He went to the sanctuary where God is. But yes, God is everywhere. He didn't need to go to the sanctuary to find God. He could have found God anywhere. But he's in the sanctuary in a special and powerful way. God meets him where there. And who is in the sanctuary with God? The people of God. He meets God in the people of God. His people are there. He's around his brothers and sisters. He's not isolated in the darkness of his own mind. And he meets God there and his perspective begins to change. Psalm 22 verse 3 says that that the Lord is enthroned in the praises of Israel. Another, Another translation says that he inhabits the praises of his people. I think there's something powerful in that because if we get alone with God and there's times to do that, I'm not discounting that one single bit. Do not hear me say that. But there is power gathering with the people of God and the means of God in gathering with the people of God is where God meets us in the quiet of our deep, dark soul and we get our eyes off of ourselves because we are forced to deal with each other. We see the Lord's work in the lives of our brothers and sisters, and we are encouraged. Don't miss this, friends. He goes into the sanctuary of God with fellow worshipers, and God uses the subtle, ordinary means of grace. Maybe maybe it was a scripture that was read, or maybe it was a song that was sung, or maybe it was an older brother in the Lord who looked at him in the eyes and said, I haven't seen you in a while, Asaph. Where have you been? I'm glad you're here. Or maybe he saw somebody that he sat next to in worship that day who was dragged down, and he for a moment got his eyes off of himself and onto somebody else. He weaned himself from himself, and the Lord used that to give him perspective. Friends, every time we gather, there are a thousand and one things that the Lord does just because the people of God gather. And we get perspective. God is there. Perspective is regained. Friends, don't miss this point. The Word of God The preached word of God is very important. You know I believe that. Singing is very important. Of course we believe that. Serving is very important. Of course we believe that. Those are all reasons we should gather. But don't miss this powerful, subtle truth. God meets us in special ways when we gather. And if you are not, if maybe something in our culture these past few years, maybe some discouragement or some spiritual excuse has set in, and you've let yourself prioritize other things before the gathering of God's people as a high priority in your life, friends, you will be spiritually malnourished. There's just no way around it. It's a fact. And it's not until Asaph went into the sanctuary where God was there with the people of God that he finally started to regain his perspective. And his heart takes four steps. I want you to see these. His heart takes four steps 
The first step is that he, his perspective on the world is renewed. Look at verses 18 through 20. He says, truly, now he sees. He's with God. He's with the people of God. His perspective is changing, and he changes. His perspective on the world around him is renewed. He says of the wicked that he was complaining about in the first half of the psalm, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He knows. He, gets, he sees, okay, you know what? Justice will happen. The Lord is in control. He knows. He's going he's gonna to take care of it. Everything. Here's the truth that his, his heart gets reoriented to. Everything will eventually be made right. But here's the deal. I want you to notice. That's just step number one. His perspective on the world around him is renewed. But he doesn't stop there. He takes another step. His perspective on himself is renewed. Look, look at verses 21 and 22. This is his second step. His perspective on himself is renewed. He says, but, but when, when my soul, verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. You know, so he doesn't, he doesn't say, that I, this is so important. He doesn't stop with step number one. His perspective is not, yeah, all the bad people out there are going to get their comeuppance. One day, they're going to be judged. No, he reflects back on his perspective lost, and he trains the, the, the sights on his own heart, and he confesses it, leads him into repentance. And he said, I was brutish. I was like a beast. I was like a fool towards you, O Lord. His perspective is not so much, the most important thing is not that it's gained on the world around him, but that it's gained on who he is. And it brings him to a place of repentance. But he keeps going. There's a third step. His perspective on God is renewed. And that's even more important than his perspective on the world or himself. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Now, I love Verse 23, verse 23 is, it's, it's glorious. It starts with this word, nevertheless. And you know I love conjunctions, because I grew up in the late 70s, in the early 80s, on that great theological cartoon, Schoolhouse Rock. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Well, I'll tell you what the function of this conjunction is right now. <laughs> Nevertheless, nevertheless, this is a powerful word. Never the, I want you to think of it this way. Nevertheless is a word bridge, okay? It's a word bridge. Think, think of nevertheless being like a bridge, and we've got, we've got a, a mass of land here, and we've got a river, and nevertheless is a bridge that's taking us across the river to another place. And this is what's so powerful about this particular conjunction, junction, what's your function. Nevertheless basically means that no matter what, that no matter what exists on this side of the bridge, it cannot overpower. It has no veto authority over what's on the other side of the bridge. The world is going to pot. Everything seems to be like the wicked are prospering, and I can't make anything of it. That's a powerful statement. That's a powerful emotion. Nevertheless, 
God won't let go of me. And what's on the other side of nevertheless is truer than whatever may be true on the other side of the bridge. Do you see that? The wicked may be prospering. Things may not be going. I mean, even though Asaph has lost his perspective, some of these things, at least in a temporary sense, may be true. Come on now. Life is real. Stuff happens. But even though those things may be temporarily true, nevertheless, what's on the other side of that word is truer than what is on the front side of that word. And it is this, that God, I am with the Lord. I am continually with you. And how am I with you? You hold me by your right hand. In other words, the perseverance of the saints, the fact that the people of God make it all the way home with God in the end has less to do with our holding on to him, but his holding on to us. He says in verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you, listen to this, listen to the confidence you will receive me to glory. You will receive me to glory. Doesn't that sound like Paul in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says that those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, meaning those who've experienced salvation, he also glorified, past tense. So Paul is speaking in the past tense of the future state of future state of the Christian. Well, we see that here in verse 24 too. He says, you will guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. In other words, that he is saying here, even though it seems like the world is a dark place and nothing seems to be going right, I went into the sanctuary of God, I got some perspective, and I am so certain of my future that I can speak of it in certain terms. You will receive me to glory. God will bring all of his people, including me, all the way home, Asaph says. And here's step four, and we end with this. Step four, I love this, because I mean, up to this point, you're like, Brad, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I see the world around me. I, I, I see, I see uh, myself more rightly. I see God more rightly. But how does that help me on Tuesday? And here's step number four. He, he gives himself practical help for today. He preaches the gospel to himself in verses 25 and 26. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Okay. Now, I want you to think about it. I want us to think about verses 25 and 26. L- look at the second half of verse 25. He says, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In verse 26, he confesses, my heart and my flesh may fail, meaning in this life, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here's how I take this verse to speak to practical help. Asaph is saying, yeah, heaven is great, and, and, and that's where my heart is, but I've got to live now. What about now? I mean, we talk a lot about eternity here, but let's also just admit, like, this life matters, right? Like, the, you know, I, I talk a lot about how it's not just these 80 years, it's eternity forever. And that gets a lot of amens. I mean, who's going to say, no, no, I don't believe that. We're just living for today. Nobody's going to believe that. I mean, that's, that's a, yeah. But, but let's also, and I don't mean to contradict everything that I've said up to this point in these last 17 years, but can I also just say, that's the major note, eternity is, is the future. But can I also say that there's a minor note on the scale of the Christian life, and it is that, well, these 80 years still matter, right? We want to live them well. 
And he's saying, my heart and my flesh may fail, but I have so reoriented myself and I understand the goodness of God. And so now, listen to this, now my heart has been trained, my heart has been reminded that there's something truer than my subjective evaluation of my circumstances, and it is the objective truth that God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And if I believe that, then I can access that. That truth in eternity can't just stay there. I access it, and I bring it into my day in this moment when my flesh and my heart is failing. So the certainty of eternity then is meant to affect the way I think and behave and feel now. That's what he's saying. There's this old Puritan book written by a man named Jeremiah Burroughs. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And you can, don't do it now, but you can look it up on Amazon and you can find it, and you can buy it, and it's written in modern-day English. It's been updated in modern-day English, and it's a slow read, but it's a glorious read. And let me boil down. I just love the title. I just love the title. The title in itself kind of preaches the rare jewel of Christian contentment. In other words, Christian maturity, being satisfied in the Lord, is something that we must fight for, and God has intended it this way. God is glorified in the struggle and the strain and the sanctification and the fighting of his people. God is glorified in the process of Psalm 73 in the life of his people. Because when we endure trial and struggle and strain, when we get to the contentment that is at the end of that thing, even in this life, it is a sweeter aroma to an onlooking world than if God were to just pour out his blessings. This is why the prosperity gospel is such garbage. Because, and by the way, it never works. All these people that preach the prosperity gospel, they may have millions, but all the people that they're trying to encourage with their prosperity gospel are don't have two nickels to rub together. And I just wonder if they remember you think, ah, oh, gosh, this is working for that one guy, but not for all the masses. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But the lie of the prosperity gospel is that God is somehow more glorified when he makes it easy on his children. And that's a lie. When the scriptures go the other way, God is more glorified. And I'm not saying I'm not in any way discounting tangible blessings of God, but God is more glorified when his people endure trial and suffering and discontentment and they press on into Christ and they find him and, they're, and God is more glorified in the satisfaction of God's people. That's why Spurgeon said, he said, I've learned to kiss the wave that dashes me against the rock of ages. And this may, be, this may be my favorite Spurgeon quote of all time. He says that the Lord Jesus often rides to the doorsteps of our, of our hearts on the black horse of affliction to wean us from this world and woo us to himself. Just don't miss the point. We don't get the power and the contentment and the satisfaction and the peace that verses 25 and 26 are offering quickly. And God has designed it like this. 
that we would meet one another in our darkest moments in the sanctuary of God, that our hearts would be reoriented, that we would have perspective on the outside world, that we would have perspective on ourselves, on God, and that we would fight for the joy that is ours in Christ. And ultimately, what is that? It's remembering the gospel. It's remembering that we, we prayed it already several times, that we deserve the wrath of God for our sins. Don't miss this, friends. This is the gospel. At the very foundation of understanding this is the good news of the gospel. And it is this, that God is glorious and holy and good and sovereign. And we, as his creation, have all rebelled against him. And we deserve wrath. We're the wicked. We're much more like the wicked than we are any righteous men in the first half of this psalm. And we deserve God's judgment. But God in his kindness has sent his son, God in the flesh, to live a perfect life, to lay down that life on the cross, to bear the wrath of God, to absorb his punishment and satisfy it and remove it and extinguish it and cause dead people with dead hearts and their wicked rebellion to come alive and believe in him and be satisfied in him. And even though he saved them and given them a new heart, he hasn't completely and fully sanctified them. He makes them struggle and strain. He leaves them in this life to fight this good fight of faith, to live out their life as a display to an onlooking world. And by the way we live in this imperfect way before the world, he uses our lives to actually bring other people to faith. Friends, that's the hope. That's the portion forever. That's the strength of God that is ours in this moment. It's that Jesus has bore the wrath of God and that I'm trusting in him and his righteousness is mine and my sin is his and he's taken it away. He's died the death on the cross for that and he rose in victory over it. So now when I look at the world around me, when I look at the holiness of God, when I look at my own life, I can say that God is the strength of my heart. I'm saved by Christ's righteousness and not mine and that's my portion that's my hope that's my plea forever the Lord Christ not just in heaven someday not just before the judgment throne as glorious as that is but now in this moment when I'm in the first part of Psalm 73 because right now you might be thinking man wow bro I appreciate this this is good I'm living in the second half but friends the first half of Psalm 73 is coming for you it's coming for you and it might be coming Tuesday And it's in that moment that we preach the gospel to ourselves and we say, my heart is failing, my flesh is failing, but God is my portion forever. Christ is my plea, his righteousness. He will receive me to glory because he is mine and I am his. And you fight for that, friends. And then he summarizes verse 27 and 20. He said, behold, those who are afar off shall perish. It's like Asaph's a good preacher. He's got to tell us what he's already told us. This is, you know, he's repeating himself here. I love it. So Asaph does it. I'm going to do it. Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. In other words, justice is going to triumph. I was wrong. Justice, I see rightly now. Justice is going to triumph. But he doesn't end there. It's more about this personal satisfaction. But as for me, it is good to be near to God. Notice the tie between verse 28 and verse 2. He says in verse 2, but as for me, my foot had almost slipped. In verse 28, he concludes, but for me, for me, it's good to be near to God. It's good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So he causes you to stay in this fight, Christian, 
to fight through the darkness, to have your perspective renewed. Why? Not just for yourself, not just for ourselves, so that we may tell of all of your works. My sanctification, my satisfaction in God isn't just for my satisfaction. It's for the mission of God amongst those whom he's drawing to himself. May he use our valleys and our perspective when it's lost and regained in this beautiful evangelistic way. Let me pray. Lord, help us to think about this text, to apply it to our lives. Lord, there are a thousand situations in this room today which are like deep waters that maybe even that are going through it don't fully understand. When we think how to understand all of this, it's too wearisome until we meet with God, with the people of God, in the sanctuary of God. And then our